Good afternoon. This is Debbie Gershenowitz, editor for History at Cambridge University Press, and I am here with Professor Michael Gomez to discuss his brand new book, the second edition of Reversing Sale, the History of the African Diaspora. Um, Mike is Silver Professor of History and Middle Eastern Studies at NYU where his achievements and expertise are legion, and so I'm only going to cite a few um, points here, and you'll probably get a better sense of his experience as we talk about the book itself. So Mike um, was a founder of the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora, or ASWAD, who I believe the conference is next month, Mike? That's right as is the African Studies Association Conference. Uh, the book will be at both. Mike has written many books, five or six books. Um, here, I'm just going to focus on our own book, Reversing Sale, but I want to note his newest book. It's called African Dominion, A New History of Empire in Early and Medieval West Africa. Princeton University Press published it in 2018, and we got the wonderful news yesterday that it is the recipient of the 2019 Martin A. Klein Prize awarded by the American Historical Association for the best book in African history. So warmest congrats to Thank Mike. You. This Thank book you. was a long time coming, yes. and um, I'll plug my, my friends uh, down in New Jersey uh, and congratulate them for publishing this wonderful book. Um, Mike also works with um, me here at Cambridge as the editor of the book series Cambridge Studies on the African Diaspora. I believe we have three books published three in books it. Out, yes. And we are actively considering other ones. And it's um, so far the series is off to a wonderful start. The book that we're talking about today, Reversing Sale, also appears in the series. It will be, I so think, that'll be, so that'll be the fourth. Book. That'll be the fourth book in the right. series. Um, so, all of this is a nice little lead-in to why we're really here, which is to talk about the book. Um, the book will be available in November, and you can order it in advance. I believe it's on sale on Amazon right now and on the Cambridge website, and also at both the ASWAD conference and the ASA conference. We will have it available for advance orders, and I believe we'll have copies to um, for purchase or to get as desk copies. Um, I think many people at both those conferences will already be familiar with the first edition and use this book um, and so for those folks today, we're here to talk about some of the new features and for the uninitiated, we are talking about the book itself. Um, a few words on the book, Reversing Sale. It was published at Cambridge in 2005. And Mike, who was the, your editor on that? Was that Lou or Eric Crahan? Eric Crahan. Eric Crahan, my predecessor. Um, and at the time the book came out, um, it's interesting, the book was not necessarily acquired as a textbook per se, but it quickly became one. And I think that really spoke to the, the just huge need for a textbook for this field. And if we go back to Mike's founding of ASWAD, which was in 2000, this came out five years later, and I think, um, Mike, I'd like, you know, some thoughts from you on that, you know, was it, was the time right when this book 
came out because it really became just instantly used in courses and has continued to be. You know, what, what was going on around the time of Aswad sure. between then and when the first edition came out? Sure, sure. Well, um, I was trained as, a, as an Africanist, I focused on uh, the theme of Islam in West Africa, and uh, that is in my graduate work, and uh, initially worked in Senegal, uh, and uh, that uh, resulted in my first publication, Pragmatism in the Age of Jihad, which was published uh, by Cambridge. <laughs> and. Um, I, at that time, what was happening was that in the field of African studies, as well as in the field of African American studies, there was developing a kind of new, a new branch, if you will, of endeavor, uh, that essentially sought to interrogate the relationship between these two fields. It was very much unorganized. There were very few uh, books in the, in the field. It wasn't even considered a field. And at the time, I was teaching at Spelman College. Uh, I finished, uh, yeah, I, I, Went to Spelman in 1988. I was there from 1988 to 1997. So that book could not have come out in 1998. I have 1993. 1993, yes. thank you. Uh, or Amazon uh, has yeah, it as 1993. Yeah, I think it's probably 1992, <laughs> something like that. At any rate, sorry about that. Um, so I was um, looking at both what was happening in African studies and in African-American studies, and I was beginning to develop uh, some ideas about African diasporic studies. And I actually began to pioneer this idea at Spelman College. And this was during the time in which Jeanetta Cole was president of Spelman, and it was, you know, it was already an illustrious institution, but it gained, it, 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 it garnered even more um, attention uh, under Dr. Cole's leadership as president. And she allowed for um, several of us as younger scholars to develop a course, to explore the development of a course that turned into something that uh, was called the African Diaspora and the World. And this course became a required course for all Spelman students. And it was in that period, and I'm not quite sure about the date, somewhere in 1994, 95, shortly after the publication of uh, Pragmatism, we began to pioneer this course, and so I uh, began developing ideas about uh, how to approach this conversation concerning uh, the history and experiences of African-descendant people um, globally. So I actually began thinking about the text 
the book as a kind of text for this course, African Diaspora in the World. The, the, uh, the book didn't come out until after I was uh, gone. I came to, after I left uh, Spelman, I came to NYU in 1999. So it took a little while to write, but I kind of had that, that sort of undergraduate audience in mind when I wrote the first edition of the book. So the idea is to consider how we might, re given the, the reality that global history is this massive, massive um, uh, challenge, both to understand and certainly to teach, um, and the, uh, and the, uh, interest in trying to locate African-descended people within this much larger conversation. The challenge became how can we kind of drill down and, and center um, the African-descended experience globally and to um, create a narrative uh, through which this history unfolds in ways that corresponds to, you know, the major uh, epochs uh, in, in, in global or world history. And so that was uh, more or less the challenge initially. And uh, so the, um, I thought that it was very, very important that this history not begin with a discussion of the transatlantic slave trade and, and, and American slavery. This is often where the conversation begins. I think that is not the place to begin um, uh, the discourse, but rather in a more uh, ancient period, and in fact in antiquity, to try to recapture the ways in which um, black people in this period uh, experienced their lives and pursued their interests and in so doing uh, we begin to talk about uh, states and commerce and scholarship and and uh, uh, you know activities uh, which are not normally associated with you know a kind of conventional understanding of, of the black experience. Right. And so we begin that conversation in antiquity. Right, right, right. Well, so that conversation went on to sell um, just under 18,000 copies of the wow. first edition. Oh, um, so um, we are long overdue for this second edition. And um, I, you know, it, it was how the second edition came out is sort of a story in itself. I mentioned that this book, we didn't necessarily expect it to be a textbook per se, um, but since in the years that passed, and it was quite some time between publication in 2005, and we were talking 14 years later, mm. we're coming out with the second edition. Mm. Traditional textbooks tend to be, now be updated much faster. Oh. Um, but, um, in, in history, you know, you could be, at least I found in history, you can use a good old stalwart for a long time. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the field of 
African diaspora studies is relatively young, so I think we had some luxury there. But um, Cambridge itself has gotten much more serious about producing textbooks, Mm. and since Mike first published it, we have an entire team that um, sells and markets textbooks in ways that we didn't do before, so as editors, um, we were encouraged to, you know, look around and see hmm, what might be right for a second edition. Now, I've been an editor for a long time, and editors know a lot of people, so I've known Mike um, for quite some time, and I knew Mike's book before I knew him. Um, and so when we started working together you know, on other projects, mainly the series I mentioned, you know, it was always in the back of my mind, and actually I, the front of my mind, because I would gently push Mike every year or so and say, how about a second edition? Um, Because I just knew that there was more to say and that this could work as one. Um, So when Mike finished African Dominion, um, he was able to turn his attention to this edition. And, you know, I I think in this case, time has really been on our side at the very least, just because when you think about the extension of the timeline in this new edition, you know, Mike mentioned that, you know, something really valuable about this book is where we start the timeline. We're taking it before the traditional narratives of the black experience. But when you think about 2005 and now, uh, Barack Obama wasn't president in 2005. And so if we're thinking about, you know, just ways to rope some of the young people in, you know, and I'm thinking especially, you know, I hope this will rope young people in, perhaps from towns where everyone is white and they don't know anything about this. They will know that there was a black president. And not only was there a black president, but, you know, um, very much a product of diaspora with roots back in Kenya. So I think just, you know, Time was really on our side That's in this right. case for many reasons. I think a historian will always be able to say time is on our side. But yeah. here, in thinking about how it can grab young people, you know, just uh, young people in this country um, and around the world. Um, I mean, this huge things happened in the world that had never happened before. So we have that. Um, and, um, you know, to me, some of the really exciting features of the new edition, besides the timeline, um, Mike has um, really focused more on women and gender Mm -hmm. than the first issue had, and I think this really reflects a a trend to which I'm very thankful for in the academy. We have a long way to go, but, um, you know, we are starting to sort of revise narratives and thinking about history as experienced through people beyond those who traditionally wrote the histories, Mm -hmm. which were mainly um, literate um, people that were white. So, you know, people of color, you know, the people who form the story of this book, but also um, women, indigenous people. Um, And this has a, a much wider focus on who experiences and produces history, um, which I personally think is essential for really any book, but especially for a textbook with these young minds. You know, I mean, when I think about how I learned history and probably how Mike learned history, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, there was only right. you know one kind of person that produced right. history. Right. Um, so, 
and and was a historical actor. That's so right. this I think is is very exciting. And are there you know are there any sort of either particular figures or particular sort of stories or anecdotes that jump out on you that sort of show you know sort of new producers or experiencers of history in this book? Well, uh, actually, let's talk about the cover. Why don't we? The cover okay. of this book All right. um, is ex very striking, and it's a beautiful um, bust of a woman. So why don't you talk about the well, cover? Well, yeah, I thought that <clears throat> this particular um, um, representation, which I believe was made by a French uh, sculptor, uh, sought to capture uh, an African or African Descended, descended woman who was in some uh, fashion resisting uh, her enslavement, resisting her subjugation. And I thought that it was a fitting kind of image for what the book is trying to understand. And that is <coughs> the um, the, the, a major thesis of the book is that uh, the, the introduction of African servile labor in the Americas was a, um, uh, uh, represents a kind of uh, beginning, if you will, of, of many ideas and forces, developments with which we uh, uh, associate uh, modernity. And, and uh, by modernity, I'm interested in uh, more specifically uh, the emergence of certain uh, sorts of social and economic relationships uh, between uh, particular groups, which I think help to, to us to understand the the essence of modernity, and so it's with the transatlantic trade from the 15th century forward that we begin to see uh, the rise of um, the rise of a particular kind of labor that will serve as the basis for the expansion of global capitalism, which uh, helps to explain, you know. Many, many different uh, relationships, and so to that end, uh, feminist theory was very, very helpful as it seeks to underscore, you know, the intersectionalities uh, between race and class and gender and sexual preference and and so forth. And so, I, I, I attempt to use uh, uh, this approach. Uh, as a way of organizing my thoughts and trying to understand what's happening in these uh, in these different uh, regions, and so as I follow, so as, so once we get into the 15th century and beyond, I'm interested in both uh, understanding how uh, these intersection intersectionalities were were in parallel and at the same time. Um, 
in, in instances in conflict or, or, or in ways uh, contradictory. Mm -hmm. And so that it becomes very interesting to me that while we can talk about things like race, um, race does not uh, express itself in a similar fashion throughout the Americas. That is to say, race travels very differently. And as a consequence of race traveling very differently, is culturally inflected. Uh, it affects, you know, ideas concerning, you know, gender and, and class and so forth. And so what you have as a consequence is a kind of flowering of societies in the Americas in particular, in which uh, you have populations that uh, are like and yet unlike one another. But the Americas are only one story, and it's a big story. But also the book tries to spend more time understanding uh, the African experience, African-derived experience in Europe, in particular uh, during the Renaissance. Uh, so, I, so I have a, 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 a much of a chapter, I don't know if it's a whole chapter, but, uh, but uh, much of one of the chapters focuses on developments uh, in Renaissance Europe and how both the um, presence of Africans and, and, the, and, the, and the ideas that, 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 that flourish as a consequence of their, of their presence and, the, and you know, this unfolding of you know, nascent uh, global capitalism impacts uh, how we understand you know their their subjectivity. So that's 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 a that's a new part of the book that was uh, you know it's it's in the second edition. And then you were talking about the the temporal aspect of the book, and so it expands all the way into the 21st century as opposed to before, which I where I think I, it stopped around 1960 or something like that, and uh, takes us through the election of, of Barack Obama. But what that allows us to consider is the relationship of this older diasporic formation with the, with the moment in which we now in which we now inhabit, which is in which we are seeing an uh, the development of a, a a phase. I'm arguing that it's a phase of the diaspora in which, um, and as you rightly pointed out, Barack Obama is himself emblematic. That is to say, you have people who are um, African descended, but unlike the older, earlier formation, they maintain relations and contact. And, and, and so this, you know, this makes for a very interesting kind of um, social dynamic, and so, you know, the question becomes, what is the relationship between this older and newer diaspora uh, uh, formation, set of formations? And so that's something that I try to explore. One of the, you know, talking about sort of broadening the scope of this, I believe in this edition too, you've broadened um, the geographic breadth of this, that there's more on the African diaspora in Latin America East Africa, the yes. Persian Gulf, and you know, of course, Europe. Um, but uh, you know, I, I find that very exciting. I mean, you know, we don't going back to this idea about sort of how 
we tell and teach history, you know, it, just, just the, the emphasis on the West, uh, you know, on, on the, you know, or not an emphasis on the global South yes. <laughs> um, remains yes. striking. Yes. And, and, and I do think this diaspora in particular, I mean, if you think about um, Latin American history, um, yes. I mean, Afro-Latin America is, yes, that is, you know, if, if we talk about slavery in, you know, the United, what, what is now the United States, uh, to me that's a tiny story about what, what's Compared a larger story about, um, about Latin America or the Americas. And, and, and then many of us here, you know, just know so little about Persian Gulf, yes. um, East Africa. Yes. So how much of that is new? All um, of that or is more, new. that's all complete. Uh, so, so what was your decision to include all yeah, that? Yeah, so you know, I did actually, you know, in the first edition, I, I, Latin America certain, is certainly there, uh, but I spend much more time with it in the second edition trying to, you know, engage with some of the, some of the minutiae in these, in these societies in Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba, Etc. So you're going Brazil. well beyond the Brazilian story. Right? Brazil, the Brazilians are there, but but you know they you know they're they're a force, they're a presence. But yeah, I talk about uh, other um, similarly situated populations in uh, South America, and um, uh, speaking of the region, I do also um, give great a little more attention to the Caribbean. Um, English, you know, the first edition spent, spends a lot of time on Saint-Domingue slash Haiti. That continues, but, but there's more in the second edition on other aspects of, of the Caribbean. Now, with respect, to the, with respect to what is sometimes referred to as the Central Islamic lands or the Persian Gulf, yes, uh, you know, because between 2005 and 2019, I personally learned a lot more about you know these populations, right. you know in Iran, in Turkey, uh, you know it was, and so forth. Um, uh, even um, certainly India. Well, we know something. We already knew something about that. But the Persian Gulf populations became very uh, intriguing to me. So I so I incorporated a lot, some more about those populations. Um, Pakistan as well, which uh, so Pakistan is totally absent in the first edition, so it, it's in the second. Um, yeah, and so then, if I may, I do spend. Uh, there's another way in which there's another entry into the second edition, and that's Africa itself, uh, and I became very interested in the ways in which the histories of Af the African diaspora and Africa are tethered and are connected. And what I'm trying to demonstrate is the, are the ways in which uh, st the struggles for independence in those places uh, were informed by uh, either ideas and or persons emanating from the West, em emanating from the Americas and getting involved in these in these struggles, and so it's been it's very interesting, very interesting. That, that's fascinating, actually, and I can see how um, that would also expand 
the use of this book, mm. you know, mm -hmm. in, you know, not just African history classes, but um, maybe some anthropology. I, I mean, th there's a lot of ways to, to use maybe this. Political and science. Political science. Political with, science if you're talking yeah. about the liber yeah, the, the independence movements. Yes. Um, it's, um, that to me is so exciting um, and, and I think really new because I think you're right. You know, we, I, don't, I think when we think about diaspora, we think that you must cross an ocean or mm. go to a different continent. Mm -hmm. And um, that's just not true. Right, <laughs> you right, know? Right. And when you're thinking about Africa, especially the, the, the different cultures, the different, you know, and just when you think about the constellation of all the different countries that, that yes. are in there, that yes. you could, that I would, yeah, diaspora. I would hope that this might actually encourage maybe even some courses, just, you know, Africa. Yes. Diaspora in Africa. <laughs> yeah. Not, well, know, it's because, fascinating. Yes, because, the, you know, I think as I, as I, th as I recall, uh, initially the idea for writing this book was that uh, Cup wanted to get away from, you know, a standard textbook. And instead, uh, several of us were asked to write uh, a much smaller book that from which and, and the idea I, I believe was that at the end of the process there may be 20 books or so from which um, uh, professors could could pull what they wanted right this was in the new approaches the new approaches right and so that was the idea and uh, so I was asked to write the diasporic, on the diasporic dimension of African history. Just to give you an example, we've talked about Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, uh, and the the central fig, the, 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 the central focus there is on relations with Brazil, which are ongoing, as well as Cuba, and in fact, Cuba will get directly involved in this war uh, with the Portuguese and will fight in Angola, Mozambique. Um, and if the, if the, the discussion of the anti-apartheid movement is rather straightforward. Mm -hmm. It's not straightforward, but we are familiar with, um, you know, the, 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 the ways in which there was a kind of global, um, uh, a global uh, uh, effort uh, to fight uh, against apartheid. It, which ended, you know, of course, in Mandela becoming president of that country. Yeah, but I mean, even earlier on, with respect to places, with respect to what becomes, we know about Liberia, we know about Sierra Leone, uh, we know less about uh, what becomes Nigeria. Okay, I think we are going to wrap this up, but I always like to end these on sort of, you know, how do we apply this to things we think about today? And I guess my thought and question for you is, you know, Migration, as we think about it today, we don't think about it in the same terms we did when you wrote this in 2005. There was yeah. not, you know, there have always been refugee crises, but it has, you know, sort of made the headlines. And I guess my question is, you know, how do we, how do we take some lessons that we learn, you know, in this book about, you know, sort of the relationship between diaspora and migration? You know, there, there's. 
they're synonyms. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. they might be the same things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there's there's a and I'm also thinking today, you know, about migration. So much of it, you know, my, the migration of refugees, is coming from Africa. Yeah. Um, you know, is this what is this kind of diaspora? Yes. And what can how can students start thinking about that um, maybe differently and maybe with some more urgency yes. when they read this book? Yes, well, of course, you know, this, the earlier form, uh, diaspora formation was kind of, a, you know, um, any Corey, uh, the, the famous uh, West African historian, um, uh, Joseph Any Corey, refers to it as forced migration. And so that, that was the, the essence of that experience. Uh, you know where uh, where coercion was at the at the uh, was at the root of that development. Uh, a different kind of thing takes place from the 60s through the turn of the 21st century, in which you have persons who are migrating out of Africa uh, into into the U.S. and Canada. And, and uh, Europe for the purpose of obtaining uh, education, and, uh, pursuing economic uh, opportunities and so forth. And this is a period in time in which, you know, uh, many of these countries are more or less open to uh, this migration. So you, as a matter of fact, more Africans have, I have to check, it's, it's in the book and I have to check the dates, but I. Basically, I think it is the case that there that more Africans uh, entered the United States from either 1945 or 1960 to the end of the, of, the, of the century than did all of the Africans combined through the transatlantic slave trade. So you have quite a few uh, coming into places like the United States. Uh, but once we get into a subsequent period, um, Toward the end of a, in, during Obama's second uh, administration, and certainly into the present, now we see um, uh, the constriction of these opportunities, uh, and this is combined with exigency, both with respect to war and drought and economic um, deprivation, political instability, and so it is creating for. Quite a, quite a, uh, quite a challenge for uh, industrialized nations, uh, raising all sorts of questions in terms of uh, what uh, is the West's capacity for uh, absorbing these populations? What is the West, what responsibility does the West have to absorb these populations? Uh, what how will the absorption of these populations impact the cultural and social fabric of these societies? And so these are all important questions and fair questions to ask, for which uh, I don't know that any of us really have the answers. Um, but it is a situation in which uh, the cultural imperatives, I think, at the moment are out weighing uh, some of the economic realities, such that at some point 
um, the latter may overtake the former. What do I mean by that? I think that as societies become more and more heterogeneous, it creates um, levels of anxiety uh, in the whole societies such that uh, we see the politics of these countries uh, become very much uh, uh, fixated on, the, on this question. And so the politics of, of Europe, much of the politics of Europe, not, not unlike those of the United States, are completely royal by the question of you know, migration. And, uh, but um, at least in the case of Europe, the situation is simply that the demand for labor uh, is not being met by, you know, kind of natural increase. And so at some point, some sort of compromise will have to be reached. And, but as well, I think that the, I think that the issues raised by, uh, you know, kind of stressed migration, if you will, uh, is putting a lot of pressure on, on the nation state itself and on the meaning of the nation state and the integrity of the nation state and whether uh, this is a political, um, whether this is a, a political uh, convention that can survive uh, in its present state or if it will have to adapt, you know, to more, to, to more you know, kind of transnational remedies and, and relations. So this is, this is, these are, we don't know how this will be resolved. Right. Yeah. Well, that's another reason. That we'll have to wait for the third edition. Wait for the third edition. Wait for the third edition. Because, you know, resolved or not, um, there, there, were, there will be much to write yes. about. And consider This is about. happening, yes. Exactly. This is happening, yes, yes. So, Mike, I just want to thank you. And, um, again, I, the book will hit the um, shelves in November. And... That's a wrap. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs>